the ongoing Huawei 5G saga, how organizations should respond better to cybercrime, and why it's digital currency time. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The role of Huawei in 5G infrastructure took another turn this week, with the UK banning telcos from purchasing any further equipment from the Chinese vendor by year-end, and promising to rip out and replace existing infrastructure by 2027. With more on this ongoing saga, here's ISMG's Executive Editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Britain this week executed a high-profile U-turn over its 5G network rollout. Just six months ago, the government had said that its telecommunications firms could use gear built by high-risk vendors, such as China's Huawei, at least to a limited degree. Chinese vendors of 5G equipment are considered to be high-risk because, under Chinese law, they could be required by their government to spy on customers. This week, however, the UK government reversed that Huawei decision. Now, British telecommunications firms are banned from buying any new gear from high-risk vendors after the end of this year. By 2027, they must also remove all Huawei gear from their networks. U.S. President Donald Trump has claimed credit for single-handedly bringing about Britain's shift. We confronted untrustworthy Chinese technology and telecom providers. We convinced many countries, many countries, and I did this myself for the most part, not to use Huawei because we think it's an unsafe security risk. It's a big security risk. I talked many countries out of using it. If they want to do business with us, they can't use it. Much has changed since January when, despite heavy lobbying from the White House for a full ban, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson instead announced that the nation's four largest telcos could use equipment from high-risk vendors for up to 35% of non-sensitive parts of their 5G and gigabit-capable networks, at least for the next three years. That plan had been recommended by GCHQ's National Cyber Security Center. The NCSC runs a Huawei testing lab. But the U.S. changed the game in May, when its Commerce Department altered an export control rule to prohibit anyone from supplying chips to Huawei if any aspect of the design or manufacture of those chips involved U.S. technology, including software. That triggered a fresh review by the NCSC, which concluded that the risk of using Huawei could no longer be managed, says Robert Hannigan, who served as director of GCHQ from 2014 to 2017 in an interview with BBC Radio 4. The recent U.S. sanctions um, make Huawei uh, opaque as well as untrusted. We've always thought they were untrusted and high risk, but we're confident that we could manage them with certain constraints and within uh, a fairly limited role. But uh, the recent sanctions on semiconductors on chips uh, make that very difficult to do. Analysts say the selling point of equipment built by Huawei, which is heavily subsidized by the Chinese state, is that it is much less expensive than rival offerings from Sweden's Ericsson and Finland's Nokia. But telecommunications carriers now find themselves likely having to rely mostly on just these two relatively high-priced options. The truth is this is a failure of industrial policy in the West, dating back to the last decade of the last century. 
uh, when we we allowed China basically to become the the monopoly supplier effectively of the best in 5G and we ceded that territory. My worry is that the, you know, this is one particular tactical issue. Um, what about all the other technologies that China is investing heavily in, artificial intelligence, robotics, and will be world leading in many respects? And we need a sensible discussion in the West about what do we really care about? What do we want to protect? What do we need uh, Western manufacturers to be investing in? And how are we going to incentivize that? That's the big picture. Belatedly, some countries are now trying to catch up. U.S. lawmakers have proposed creating a $1 billion fund to accelerate the creation and adoption of trusted Western-built options. Britain and the EU, however, have yet to signal if they might also pursue such measures. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Interpol is a central organization in dealing with all forms of crime globally, including cybercrime. They have 194 member countries, and in their own words, help police in all of them to work together to make the world a safer place. Craig Jones is Director of Cybercrime at Interpol, and this week... ISMG's Director of Production, Anna Delaney, spoke with Craig about trends he's seeing in the wake of COVID-19. In this section of the interview, Anna asks Craig how organisations can better respond to cybercrime. Here's his response. So I think historically, uh, well not even historically, even now, um, there's an underreporting of cybercrime, without a doubt. Uh, you know, if, if someone is assaulted in the streets or they're in a car accident or their, their house is broken into, it's perfectly normal and we're all used to it. We would call the police. I think because there we can see ourselves, we're a, we're a victim of crime effectively. And there's a, there's a tangible feel to that. I think in the online space, there isn't always that tangible feel that you've been a victim. And also sometimes you don't even know you've been a victim of cybercrime, of course. So that, that's another important factor. There's a piece as well about, um, I think in Europe in particular, when GDPR came in around the sort of mandated reporting. Now, that didn't used to happen because sometimes a company wouldn't want to report it for reputational reasons and things like that as well. Um, But again, that then became mandated. So that actually then set up quite an interesting scenario where a company would be a victim because they might have had a data breach and they'd lost the data set. But also then technically they'll become an offender because under GDPR, they would have to report that the data had gone. And if they hadn't taken the necessary steps, then they could then be fined. So it's almost, uh, it, it's, it's converse in some ways. And you can see why some companies would, would, would struggle with that. I think, you know, in order to deal with it better, it, 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 it's understanding. And I think that, that sort of the pandemic where we've all gone at home working now, for example, you know, we log in and we find it very difficult to log in sometimes. We think it's very frustrated because, you know, we might have to do two-factor authentication and things like that. It's understanding the reasons why you're having to go through these security processes. It's around protecting the company and some more awareness internally in companies around why we need to do this. I, I had a conversation with someone recently who suffered quite a, a serious data breach um and his view was that that wasn't my problem i was just doing my work you know that's my job is just log on just doing my work the security side of it is is not my problem well actually that 
that's the first problem because it is everybody's problem. And I think raising that awareness through companies, you know, from the person who's logging in on a daily basis, right up at that board level and making sure, you know, they really know what's going on. You know, IT is just not about, you know, being able to have a, a keyboard and a computer and being able to access. It's the whole package that goes in around that. You know, why might we have sort of two-factor authentication as well? Why might we use uh, VPNs? Um, you know, there's a number of different reasons in that, and it's a layered model approach that we need to take where to it. But I think coming back to the point is, it's around that clear and good communications within organisations about promoting good cyber hygiene, cyber security. Um, and again, it comes back to that policing thing. It's about the crime prevention aspect to it as well, effectively. Finally, I got to speak this week with Dave Birch, an author and advisor with Consult Hyperion and a true subject matter expert on the topics of digital identity and money. We discussed a number of items, but one that I was most interested about was a statement he made recently that he truly believes we're on the cusp of transitioning to digital currencies around the globe, in the same way as many factors aligned to make the steam engine and the industrial revolution occur. So I asked him, why is it digital currency time? Here's Dave. Yeah, well, the reason I was using that as an analogy was because it's a, you know, you, you see historians and anthropologists talk about this sort of thing. They say, you know, different people had steam engines and different people had the bits to make steam engines. And in different parts of the world, there was coal and iron and mine. There's all the things that you need. So how come the first commercial steam engine was for pumping water out of a Cornish mine? And the answer is it's, you, you can't point to any one thing and say it was because of the presence of coal or it's because of a new technique for forging iron or because you know, surplus capital had arisen because of the advent of capitalism. It's kind of all of those things, which is just saying you got steam engines because it was steam engine time. And I think the same is true with digital currency. We've had the technologies for digital currency for actually quite a long time now. And, and some experiments that we, I, I hope, people learned from, but um, perhaps they didn't learn as much as they, they could have done from them. We've had digital currency for a long time. The conditions for delivering digital currency, pervasive communications networks, tamper-resistant hardware, you know, in the form of mobile phones. So what's different now? Why, why was I suddenly moved to write a new book about it? Why did it all of a sudden wander into the strategy workshops I was involved in? It's actually not because of technologists. It's not because of business people. It's because of central banks. And in yeah. particular, it's because, I mean, they'd all been looking at it for a while. But, you know, Mark Carney, who, who then was the governor of the Bank of England, stood up last year and said, perhaps we should think about what he called a synthetic hegemonic currency, mm. an SHC, which I actually, I, I always abbreviate it SYHC because I like to call it a sick currency. So Mark Carnes said, we, you know, we need to look at the idea of a sick currency. Why? Because of uh, what he called the destabilizing dominance of the US dollar. The international monetary and financial system was created at the end of the Second World War. It served its purpose magnificently, but it's, it's not a law of nature. And right. the way things work now is not necessarily the way they have to work in the future. If we want to achieve some other goals around you know financial inclusion and all those kind of things we need digital cash in other words right. 
you need some form of digital currency. Just having electronic money in bank accounts isn't enough. It doesn't get us there. And, and actually, I can, a very good example has, has, of course, come up because of the pandemic. Well, you've seen the situation where in the US, they're printing, printing physical checks and mailing them out to people, many of them still alive. Whereas in China, they've got digital currency running in four cities. And the idea that a government stimulus would be printed and posted and whatever in 2020 seems, especially like in some emerging markets, the government wanted to get stimulus payments to people. So it got them to open mobile wallets and then just drop the money straight into the mobile wallets. So it's no one thing, but because of all of those things, and certainly because of the stimulus of central banks and COVID, yeah, it's, it's digital currency time. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.